Hey everybody, I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O'Henry Productions. This is our very first episode of The O'Henry Report, a podcast by Broadway World that will give you a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. In case you haven't listened to our teaser, in each episode we'll bring you a candid conversation uh, or a few with theater insiders pulling back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. Everything from the grosses, casting announcements, closings, and Tony Awards, we will have it all and give you an industry perspective on what you read about on the web. So for this first episode, I have with us Broadway World reporter and producer of The O'Henry Report, Matt Temenini. Matt, thanks for being on here with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor and a privilege. Matt is not only uh, a reporter on Broadway World and uh, the producer of this podcast, but is on uh, hosting every morning on Broadway radio. And I thought I'd put him in in the shoes of, of podcast hosts just for uh, the beginning of this episode so that he can give you a little bit of a, an overview of what we're doing on the show and, and also talk to me a little bit about who I am to give you a, a sense of who I am before I go ahead and, and host this thing every other week. Yeah, it, to kind of let people know that you actually have the bona fides to host a theater business podcast and stuff. So, so Oliver, let's just talk first about how this podcast, The O'Henry Report, is going to differ from any other theater podcast. We have very few theater podcasts that actually dive into the business side of show business. Most of them focus more on the show. So from your perspective, as a producer and an investor in Broadway and off-Broadway shows, how do you approach the business news side of things? How will you bring that into what we do on The O'Henry Report? Sure. So obviously, the the first answer to that question is I think there's a different process for or, or flow of information as it comes into my awareness as opposed to another kind of, of Broadway fan or, or worker's awareness. And that is simply the filter I use uh, as to which types of, of, of news pieces are important or, you know, or more relevant to what I'm doing and, and what aren't. For example, while I think that, you know, finding out what Ben Platt's favorite ice cream flavor is, is a really cool thing to know as a Broadway fan that's trying to get immersed into the, the world of Broadway and to learn about the, the stars. I think that what we'll be doing is learning about the intricacies of the numbers that go into a Broadway show in, ter- in terms of grosses and budgets the legal issues and manipulations that happen to uh, put together a production contract or to extend a show or to close a show, anything that has to do with sort of the the gears that, that grind to get a show working on a legal perspective, a, a fiscal perspective, or a, a marketing uh, perspective is sort of the, the, the lens that I digest information from. So that's kind of the, the first the first part to answer. And then I think the the other thing I, I do is I really like to take a, a look into sort of what is not written in an article. So for example, if 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 a casting announcement is made, right, let's say some a star is being replaced, um, there are a bunch of questions that are often not answered by the article that really kind of tell you about the show. Why is the person being replaced? Was it the end of their contract? Uh, did they get a, you know, another an offer from you know a movie or whatever? And what might that show need or be looking 
to accomplish in recasting. So it's not just what is happening, but sort of why it's happening and how that how the industry and the machine of Broadway grinds to churn changes and what the decision makers that made the decision to change a cast member or to extend a show, how they came about to the final result, which then you know, you'd read about online. So, Oliver, I know, obviously, like you said, you're going to look at things different than a normal theater fan would. But I also know that having known you for over a year now that you also look at things, or at least you try to look at things differently than other Broadway producers. Do you are very much uh, into the data of the business side of Broadway, kind of like the Nate Silver 538 side of things. So from your perspective, one, how are you going to integrate that into the things we talk about on this show? And then how do you try to do that as a producer and investor of shows? I'm very, very much a proponent of really looking at the hard data and the numbers. In in every industry and sort of everything that we do, it's very easy to go off of our own personal experiences and what we sort of believe to be true. And especially in an industry like the theater where we're dealing with sort of high drama and emotion every day, it's really easy for us to become optimists about shows that we are really fond of or, you know, or that we're championing and, you know, pessimists on shows where we didn't really have the same reaction that maybe a majority of theater goers did. So, you know, that's why different people root for different things when, when it's Tony season or even at the box office. And sometimes that sort of informs your ability to process your own kind of sensory input of, of what you're seeing in the news and seeing on the stage. And so the numbers are sort of a an objective way. You know, the numbers don't have emotions. My Excel documents don't have emotions. They can, can look at these things on a more objective level. So if you're looking at this stuff from such an objective numbers-based level, I have a feeling that there are some people out there who are saying, but that removes the heart and the vision and the importance that telling certain stories can have on the world and not just on the theater community. So how do you balance that between wanting to do your fiduciary responsibility of making sure a show has the best opportunity to make money, but also realizing that part of the importance of art is to communicate stories that are going to hopefully move people and maybe potentially in a big picture change the world. Yeah, that's a, a really great question and one that is something that I've think about a lot because sometimes I am championing myself or a big fan of something that the numbers are just telling me won't work. And I think the answer is, first of all, the numbers give you a guideline, but there are always, you know, the dark horses that pull out a win. There are always major upsets. There's always the, the in sports, the seventh seed that beats out the, the first seed. And when you look at the numbers, Sometimes if I have a show that doesn't really look like from a statistical perspective, it's going to work out, but I, you know, I know in my heart it will, you, you, you supplement the data with your instincts. And, and actually that's something that's really important, especially in this industry, because there's not an unlimited, there's a, not an unlimited amount of data for you to pull from. Not everything is, is, is recorded in terms of 
you know, the the weekly running cost of a show and, you know, what percent a show ended up closing on. And B, we're talking about sort of the numbers behind behind an art, which is, you know, what your question gets to. And so at the end of the day, the numbers are a guide, but they they need to be informed by the by the art. I, I, I have not yet figured out and, you know, I'm sure one day there will, but I have not yet figured out the the way I can use my sort of algorithms to figure out what a good piece of art is. I can only say what the numbers of a show look like in comparison to other successful or unsuccessful shows. So there's certainly a huge area and, and a portion left for championing high art pieces and taking a risk on something that might not be the most safe play. And you know, this is this kind of space to do it in. I wouldn't recommend doing that necessarily so much in like the stock market where, <laughs> um, you know, where, where, where they did do a really good job crunching numbers there, but here like it's performance art and you sort of have to go out on your limbs, especially early on in a production when there's not really data about the production. It's a balancing act. And I think that's knowing where to let art, you know, your, your aesthetic choices and your heart sort of outweigh the numbers is as big of a, piece of solving the puzzle as knowing the numbers themselves. Well, and I think it's a there's a big difference between whether it's looking at the data of sports or looking at the data of finance and, and Wall Street is is that there there is one obvious goal in sports, it's to win, and on Wall Street and in the stock market, it's to make as much money as possible. While making as much money as possible is obviously important in Broadway because it is for the most part a commercial business. There are other factors to be added in as well, and it's a much harder thing to predict than in sports and in stock markets or even politics, which we know from recent history is not as easy as we hoped it would be. So I, I totally understand what you're saying about trying to balance that and find that thing. But as Mr. Sondheim said, art isn't easy and, and it's not a science. You know, So I, I love the idea of kind of bringing both the hard numbers and the soft heart together in one thing. But one that made me think, uh, Oliver, one show that you uh, are involved in as an investor, I do think probably could be considered an underdog in that um, was Kinky Boots, where going into the Tonys that season, I think a lot of people expected that it would be a runner up to Matilda. And a lot of people thought, ah, this show is cute, but it's not going to run for a while. Fast forward over three years, it's a Tony winner for Best Musical, and that show is still raking in a lot of money on Broadway, thanks to some really great casting. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's talk real quick just about, A, how you became a Broadway producer, and B, how you came to this more analytical side of producing than from where a lot of your colleagues um, come from as well. So first off, what is your background? How did you get into producing Broadway and off-Broadway shows? Sure. Yeah. Um, as you'll see, I think that all, even though this is a multi-layered question, how I got into this business is sort of informs how I approach it. I started as someone who just liked theater as an extracurricular at Johns Hopkins and who was going into uh, or studying psychology and business. And in my psych studies, I was working in a research lab uh, my entire undergraduate career and, and actually almost got a PhD. Um, and that's where a lot of my background in behavioral psychology and uh, studying 
trends and behavior, uh, consumer behavior comes into play. And on the marketing end, I, I was being educated in the era where web and data was was first becoming a, a big talking point in the industry. And so I got my education about data and the importance of data from early on in, in that in that time. Um, only after I graduated did I ever even know that there was such a thing as a as a producer on Broadway that did uh, the sorts of things that I was interested in doing as a as a marketing professional, but for and and a business person, but for the theater. And I quickly adjusted uh, my my career trajectory to move back to New York, where I'm from originally, and learn as much as I can about the industry. Partly in trying to figure out if it is indeed what what I wanted to do, and also so that I. You know what felt like I wasn't a a novice in the field if you know if and when I did start to work in it. Just talking about Kinky Boots as the lead into this. Kinky Boots was the first piece. I was actually talking to a producer on Kinky Boots that was one of my earliest exposures to the industry. And in the first sort of tidbits of feelings that I had that this was an industry that wasn't being explored analytically and with data, but that could be were the decision calculi that I was using when we decided to invest in, in Kinky Boots. And uh, this was prior to me having ever put one number into into an Excel sheet or running, you know, any statistical tests. But it was just, you know, the decision seemed more calculated than just seems like a good idea, let's do it, which is unfortunately what a, a lot of <laughs> decisions uh, come down to and and it was it was sort of my understanding of I had seen Matilda, which I knew was a big competitor, and I'd seen it in London, and I felt that there was an opening for a more light lighthearted adult driven musical, and you know I'd seen the success of it in Chicago, and I also thought that Cindy Lauper as a composer was an interesting like fresh choice for theater and that other than Matilda, there really wasn't much talk of like a clear front runner. So again, not that I was, you know, now when I'm talking about all, all these things, I'm sort of comparing them to other productions and, you know, doing it in a real, uh, in a really codified system. But the fact that I took, you know, so long and, and really like found point and counterpoint of various uh, at various points along my very first decision, uh, you know, in, in the process of, of picking an investment, was a thing that made me that led me to believe, hey, I can probably apply uh, numbers to this just like I used to do in the psych lab, and come up with some sort of algorithm that would tell me whether or not you know any of these points is is a good, bad, or neutral thing for for predicting the the success of a show. All right. That's that's a lot of uh, information to calculate all into one <laughs> yeah. algorithm. But um, before we move on to talk about some of the news of the day, uh, just in the effort of full disclosure, I did want to let people know some of the shows, A, that you've been involved with in the past, and then B, some of the things that are either running or will be running. So then when we talk about them, people will know that up front and so they don't feel like we're bamboozling them and pulling the wool over their eyes. Um, on Broadway, you've been involved with Macbeth, with the Realistic Joneses, with Front Page, uh, and now with Kinky Boots, and you are um, a producer on Escape to Margaritaville, which is coming later this season. Off-Broadway, you've had things like Straight, Darren Brown's Secret, um, and the currently running Sweeney Todd as an investor that is over at the Barrow Street Theater. Is I, am I missing anything of import that we need to discuss? 
I think that's it. And, you know, I will be sure to, as as things come up throughout the, the podcast, clearly define my potential conflicts of interest for, I, for I all of you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, so let's let's kind of transition this into talking about this week's grosses. We're recording in the late afternoon, early evening of Monday, July 24th, just a few hours after the Broadway League released the weekly grosses for the week that ended yesterday on July 23rd. So looking at these grosses here, Oliver, there's not a ton of change from the previous week. The biggest change is that the Tony winner for Best Play, Oslo, has now ended its Broadway run. So we are down one show on Broadway from the previous week. We are now at 29 shows. But other than that, you notice a change in the number of performances that a couple shows had that affected their grosses either up or down. But for the most part, this was a fairly steady week on Broadway in terms of grosses. Yeah, absolutely. I think we saw you know, the loss of, of Oslo, um, but in terms of total gross, it really didn't even uh, shake things all that much. We saw a little bit of a growth overall among all shows from from last week, and you know fewer performances due to Oslo closing and Lion King and Book of Mormon going back to the regular eight show schedule, which is sort of to say everything seems normal, industry seems healthy. No you know, big red flags this week. So let's let's talk about the grosses a little bit here, because I think when people see these these numbers come out, whether you're seeing them on the, the Broadway leagues, you know, kind of basic one, or if you're looking at Broadway World, where we've got them kind of expanded a little bit more with some historical data in there, too. Obviously, that first line of this week's grosses is something that everyone wants to look at. But then there's also some of the other things that people want to talk about, the percent of gross potential or the number of seats sold or the average paid ticket as a producer, without knowing the specific nut, the weekly number that every show has to earn, what are the things that you look at as you go through these every Monday afternoon? So the first thing I do when the grosses get released is I sort by gross percent potential. And the reason is that the gross percent potential gives you a real indication of how well the show did that week against how well it could have done that week. When you look at, and, and in, in terms of how well it did in terms of the dollars that it could have brought in, when you look at something like the gross itself, that doesn't take into account the fact that different shows have different full capacities, right? So Wicked at the the Gershwin has a lot more seats than uh, 1984 does at the Hudson. And even if 1984 was a wildly more popular show, which I don't think it is um, than Wicked, the grosses should be lower because there are just less seats, fewer seats. Looking at just the percent of uh, seats sold, however, doesn't take into account the fact that some shows are highly discounting to get their numbers up or are having you know crazy premiums and crazy high ticket prices, and so they might not be selling out. So the gross potential takes both of those into account, and it basically uh, – what the gross potential does is it says based on how much that theater could max out at, what did they do this week? So organizing by that sort of gives me a very basic understanding of, of the healthiest and most struggling pr- productions. So if we're going to look at the gross potential, what does that tell us potentially about where a show sits in terms of being – in the red or in the black on a weekly basis. Obviously, on the grosses chart, we know the red and black week to week. But without knowing the actual 
break even point for each week. Can we learn something about how a producer structures the weekly running costs to say, okay, if we're at 60% of gross potential, that's probably a good idea as to where the number is, or is it 75 or is it just so varied depending on all of the different factors that go in that that's really not anything we can determine just based on grosses alone. Yeah, it is quite varied. Um, each production has their break-even point, and that is based on gross potential. And so for any given production, that changes how, what percent of their potential they need in order to pay off their weekly operating costs. Now, that said, that's usually quite low because, of course, these shows are built to try to make money. So I've seen break-evens at as low as something in the 20 percentile range or even for some plays in the, in the teens. But those productions can't actually make money, especially if they're a limited run, unless they're uh, doing much better than their break-even. And the break-even will change from week to week depending on things like how much marketing is being done that week and other factors as well. So it's not like it's one consistent number every week, correct? Correct. It's more or less around the same point when we talk about you know, the recoupment estimates for a show, we sort of have an average that we'll, we'll say it needs to hit, but the exact number is very different depending on how much the ad spend was that week. Yeah, and, and factoring in things too, obviously, like shows that are nominated for, for Tony Awards, you've got to start doling out tickets for Tony voters. And then obviously during the review period, the, the number of tickets available, which is also something you can get on the grosses sheet, kind of changes a little bit depending on how much money you can make each week. So it does kind of fluctuate. But there's from what you're saying is that it sounds like obviously the percent of gross potential, the higher, the better. But we don't can't really tell without being on the inside whether or not a show is actually making or losing money on a weekly given basis. Yeah, that's that's correct. So let's look at these a little bit now. If we're looking at the gross potential of some of these things, this past season we saw a bunch of new musicals come to Broadway um, that kind of – there was a, a little bit of a, of a drought the previous season because nobody wanted to try to compete with Hamilton. And once Hamilton had cleared its first year on Broadway, we saw a lot of other shows, a lot of other musicals decide just to come to New York. However – We've seen all types of different results from these shows, both critically and from a numbers percentage. We're talking about percent of gross potential, and currently, two we know two musicals are, have have already kind of set their their end date. We know that Miss Saigon was always going to be a limited run into January. We also know that Cats is going to close at the end of the year. So, discounting those, there are still three musicals from this past season that are in the fifty to 60% gross potential range. And those shows being from highest to lowest bandstand at 57.2%, Groundhog Day at 53.3%, and Warpaint at 52%. At what point do producers have to start thinking about, do we need to kick more money into advertising? Do we need to do something different and trim costs behind the scenes? Or do we need to start thinking about posting a closing notice? You know, we're always thinking about, well... I should say to you know, we try to be a little bit more optimistic, but I think in the back of our minds, um, even at eighty percent, you're sort of thinking about you, you need you need an exit strategy, right? That's a, an important part of any business. And I think as those numbers dip, the question each week is: Did we go up or did we go down? And will we continue to go up or down? And as long as a show's not 
continually in the red for week after week to to a point where the the sort of trajectory is that it will run out of money soon um you know you you kind of hold on to hope that that you might do a little bit better so i guess you know the answer to that question is right now i think that those productions were in the middle of summer it's a it's just a time when people are coming in and they're seeing musicals the numbers are you know numbers over the summer are great right now and in general historically and so i think the the question is how do we, for most of those shows, unless they're really out of funds already, is how do we maximize the fact that we have even just fifty percent in as a you know, and, and how do we get it up to sixty as opposed to you know when do we close? I think that come August, should things not turn around for them, which we hope they do, then we will start to see those productions maybe c- considering closing or doing some crazy press or, or ad spend to try to get them into next year. Yeah, because a lot of shows will close at or around Labor Day. And if they don't close at or around Labor Day, if they're still struggling, they'll kind of suffer through the September, October, early November part, and then hope to ride a wave through the holidays into the new year and either close after the year changes or hopefully have enough to rest on so that can get them back to the busy season of spring breaks and then moving into the Tony season, then moving into summer again. Right. I mean, there, there are really clear um, patterns to, to sort of the industry and when things close and when things are, you know, whenever the box office is dipping, you know, in terms of seasons, which, you know, as you just explained, tend to be sort of the right before the holidays and right after the holidays, that's when most productions you know, when a, when a larger number of productions than average will close or open their doors, and so I think that you know, while we're not in one of those life, one of those one of those seasons, the question is how to sort of maximize the the fact that we have people, we have so many people coming into the theater, and then sort of in the back of people's minds, and maybe you know, maybe now people are starting to talk about how are we going to get through the next drought, you know, into the holidays. So when you're looking at these grosses, you said you always go to gross potential first. Are there other benchmarks or maybe even some numbers you can look at that aren't on this grosses sheet that comes out every week? Are there other things that you look out to gauge either a show that you are working on or somebody else's show to kind of gauge the relative health of the production? Sure. Um, Yeah, so I tend to look at – it's not necessarily a different number as much as it is a comparison to – other times so for example on any of the like the total gross of the week the um, average ticket price the total attendance i'm not only looking at you know what broadway world shows which is what did we do this week and what did we do last week um but a i'm looking at what the change was so for example this past week um, we had a slight drop in attendance from the week before and so and so that that that's something that is that is reported on Broadway World, but then I also look at okay, so each week that where a gross is reported is assigned a number. So if the week started Monday, January third, that week would be week number one, and then the last week to start on, so let let's say calendar year twenty seventeen would be uh, fifty two. Sometimes there's a fifty three, depending on how the you know what day of the week certain certain dates fall, um, and so you can use that number to track how grosses were at the same time last year. So I, I look at what did we do this week, what did we do last week, what did we do 
on this week of last year. So this week is week 30. And so week 30 of last year, our total gross was 26 million, uh, 26.5 million. Whereas this week, I think we came in at like just over 31 million. That means that this year we're up a whole lot, like 18% total box office uh, in, in one year on, on this given week. The next thing I look at is, okay, so that's this year versus last year on week 30. What about a 10-year average of week 30s? And actually the 10-year average for, for this week, is uh, for week 30, is actually even lower than just what we did last year. So again, that tells me the industry as a whole is moving in a, in a good trajectory. And then finally, I, will, I look at what is this week in comparison to the average to date of this calendar year? Like we just said, it's summer. People are buying tickets. Tourists are in town. So if there's a if there's a, a week in one of those high theater going months where we're below the the year average, probably not a good sign. And you know if there's a week where we're in one of the droughts where we're doing better than the year average, that's a great sign. Uh, and hmm. we're about at where you would imagine we are, which is just uh, slightly above uh, our our year weekly average. So that's sort of on a, on a holistic industry-wide, all 30, uh, 29 now productions that are running, uh, what I would look at. If I'm looking at on a week-to-week basis, I don't really take a deep dive into any one productions or theaters you know, numbers. Usually I'll do that when it comes time for me, myself, to make a decision. Um, so if, you know, or, or, or a prediction, like if I'm, you know, trying to figure out, it, you know, if, 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 if a production's approaching its you know quote unquote closing time and the rumors are that it may or may not extend you then might want to take it to a dive into its finances over the course of the last year or several years to see you know what whether it seems like uh likely that it should that the show extends or or does indeed close um but on a on a week-to-week basis i'm not taking a real deep dive into any particular show's finances of, of course except for my own Yeah, you probably want to be as informed on those ones as much as possible. Um, Another thing I want to ask about, not for today, but keep this in mind, I want to know how you correct for the cost of inflation from year to year. So keep that in mind. We'll talk about that in a future episode. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you talked about when shows are making that final decision, and that kind of transitions us into one of the things that we wanted to close the show on, and that is the state of Broadway real estate. Right now, just to let people know, we have five shows that have announced intentions to come to Broadway this season that do not yet have an official theater assigned to them or not assigned to them, determined for them. However, we have nine theaters that either have their fall and or spring open for booking. Now, some of those will be Manhattan Theater Club, Samuel J. Friedman Theater, or Roundabout Theater Company, Studio 54, and American Airlines Theater. So those theoretically will be part of their subscription series. Definitely will be for MTC. Roundabout is a little bit more flexible with being a rental house for other productions. So there are holes in there. So we wanted to talk about this, Oliver. So I'm going to let you kind of take the lead on this and then I can fill in some gaps. Yeah. So um, just to, 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 yeah, to to put this thing into perspective about where the state of Broadway real estate is right now, right now uh, we have 29 productions in the 40 one houses, some of which aren't aren't necessarily active right now, but 41 houses. And that is uh, based on a 10 year average of, of what this week or this this month looks like. 
we're we've got like almost three shows more than than usual for this time of year. And I think that's an indication of what we talked about earlier, which is the number of amazing new work that got produced this year that really stayed open. We didn't see massive closings around, mm-hmm. you know, of, of new musicals around, around January you know, 4th this year. And we didn't see massive, clo- we really didn't see massive closing announcements after the Tonys this year, which is oh. an awesome, awesome thing. So that said, there are still 11, uh, sorry, 12 now houses that don't have a, a running show. Um, Matt, I, I think the one interesting thing to look at is that there are a number of announced shows. And I mean, officially announced like you know, in a certain theater shows that will begin and that gave those start dates for the spring. And not all of those currently have a tenant uh, or have a tenant announced for the fall. Mm-hmm. And I think those are uh, the Helen Hayes, which let's not count for right now because uh, it's under renovation. Right. <laughs> that explains that. Um, but then there's Harry Potter coming in to the Lyric. Um, which is also doing a certain amount of renovations as well. So I would not expect anything to go in there. Right. And then, uh, let's, uh, while we're talking about that, there's frozen, which, uh, they're currently gut renovated, they gut renovated the same James. So I guess that can also be put into that, put into that category. Am I right? That's correct. So that leaves, uh, I guess maybe two, uh, the, there's, MTC, which I don't think has a uh, – or uh, Prince of Broadway is, is, is opening quite soon actually there. Correct. Yeah, it opens next week. Um, and then the children will come in following that um, uh, in November and then – but they don't have anything after that. The, right. one that you're, the one that you're leaving out though, Oliver, is the it's one that's own. the most – Yeah, is yours because <laughs> uh, you've got Escape to Margaritaville coming into the marquee. That is currently where On Your Feet is, but that's closing on August 20th. So what's interesting to me about this is that it has this whole – there are 10 real theater owners on Broadway, but there's really like you know three big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Nederlanders are one of them. The Nederlanders have shown a propensity to get creative with scheduling, especially in recent years. On Your Feet last year was running fine in the fall, but they brought in Louis Black's Black to the Future on Monday nights only. So how do they, how do they decide – when to fill something in in these gaps? Do they talk to the producers of the spring show about that? Are you guys involved in that? How does that work? Um, yeah, I mean, generally, you know, unless there's a Harry Potter or Frozen situation where a renovation is happening as part of the theater's just general maintenance, or I, I think for those for both of those shows, it kind of seems like the renovations related to the needs of of the incoming show. Mm-hmm. It generally doesn't really concern the 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 current production that is well since we're talking about the marquee and you know as you said the sort of interesting producing they did last year or or housing they did last year running a show on the off nights that obviously needed to be okayed with the uh, on your feet team but other than that it's sort of you know it's it's a it's a lease you have your start date and your end date and rarely, rarely can the spring show say, I don't want, I want you to keep you know, yourself vacant for the entire fall. So that is definitely an open theater. And I think, I think it's one that might, yeah, it might do something interesting uh, in there in the fall. I'd be surprised if it sort of stayed completely unrented only because you know, the, theater owners don't 
like to stay and rent it. And then, but, <laughs> that means but, they're losing money. But but also, like you said, there are, there are a number of announced um, or we I don't think we've gotten to it yet, but rumored productions that mm-hmm. need space. So my guess, um, and I don't know uh, the answer because I'm not uh, you know affiliated with the theater at all, is that there are discussions happening for what might go in there after uh, on your feet closes because there's a there's a good chunk of time between that August 20th closing and when we get in there in, in February. So I would keep my eye on that for sure. Let me let me ask you let me ask you a question real quick about that. How quickly after a contract I assume a, a contract has to be signed before a show announces something, but how quickly does that announcement normally happen? So let's say the Nederlanders are going to sign a contract with somebody for the marquee. Is it something that we generally hear about the next day, a week later, two months later, how quickly does that information become public? Because assumingly, they're going to want to start selling tickets for whatever show is going to go in there. Yeah, that is a decision that I think uh, – that's a decision that is up to the production team and the press team on a production. If you sign the lease but don't have a cast, you might want to announce so that you can – you know, announce that you have a show and get generate some buzz, and then then you'll have another announcement when you cast. On the other hand, you might wait for uh, a cast so that you can announce like the cast and the theater at the same time and the dates. It's really a decision that comes down to a little bit of a legal discussion, I guess, but mostly a promotion, uh, press, marketing strategy decision as to when the announcement. Uh, happens. And so, yeah, there could be someone who has a signed contract with the Nederlanders and we might not know it yet. There's also the opposite, like, you know, uh, this just this week or just last week, the Parisian woman was announced with a star without a theater. So Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think maybe dates were announced or no. Uh, yes, the uh, the Parisian woman starring Uma Thurman um, is going to have its opening night on November 30th. So I would assume that given a three weeks to a month of previews for a play, that they're going to want to start selling tickets sooner rather than later. And obviously, you've got to know what theater you're going in to start selling tickets. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't know the answer to this question, but could have a lease signed. Could not. But, you know, if not, they certainly have been talking to at least a theater owner. Um, and that's why so often on these announcements, you'll hear XYZ is opening at a Schubert Theater or Jamson Theater, uh, you know, to be announced at a later date. Sometimes there are sort of unofficial agreements that the Schuberts with their tons of, you know, having so many houses can say, we'll give you a theater, <laughs> you know, we just have to see what, what comes available. And how do producers who are, you know, in the middle of the summer trying to figure out where they're going to land, what's the calculus about taking a theater that's available now? As we said, there's not, there's like nine theaters that have a spot, whether it's for a limited run right. or an open run in the spring or the fall, about taking one of those or trying to wait out shows that could be closing. How does that calculus and how does that decision come into play? Do you take what's in hand or do you kind of wait and see what could potentially happen if it's a better fit for a particular show semi unfortunately or unfortunately depending on who you are it's either fortunate or unfortunate comes down to your relationship as a producer with the theater owner so for example if scott rudin has a show of which he has a few uh (laughs) announced and i'm sure a few unannounced um because i don't think he's quite hit his like season average of six a or million seven. shows. Yeah. yeah. Of, uh, but um, 
if you're Scott Rudin, you know, and you have a really good relationship with the Schuberts and they pretty much have given you a theater, you know, when, when, when you want and need, then you can wait. If you are a newer producer or a less claimed producer and you have a show that's ready, you kind of have to say yes, because you never know if you hold out and wait a Rudin or, or a Jeff Seller or a Kevin McCollum or, or whoever it is, they might come in and take the theater out from under you. And, and they, it's, it's really about a relationship with, with the theater owner. And that's interesting. You, you mentioned Scott Rudin because he does have three of the five shows that are right. announced for Broadway uh, this coming season without a theater. And those are Carousel, The Minutes, and Three Tall Women. Now, currently, the Schuberts have three open houses, The Booth, The Broadway, and The John Golden. The Booth and The John Golden would work fine for Three Tall Women and The Minutes. Those are both houses specifically suited mm-hmm. for plays. However, The Broadway is you know kind of the only one that's fit for a musical, but they have the King Kong musical scheduled to come in in the fall of 2018. Scott Rudin probably wants carousel to run as i don't think it's a limited run so he's going to want that to run as long as possible so if he's going to stick with the schuberts chances are that he's probably going to kind of do what you said wait to see where the chips fall and then once one of the musicals that's in a schubert house closes call up the schuberts and say hey we'll take that one and that's probably where carousel will end up yeah and you know we should note that even though there are a good amount of theaters that are available I think the fact that there are plays and, and musicals announced that haven't had theaters announced is indicative of the what the real estate ethos is right now in the industry, which is that there's as we as I said earlier, there's still in a way above average holdover of works from last season that haven't yet vacated. And usually by the end of the summer, um, of which we're not quite in yet, but Usually by now, things have announced closing dates. The ones that underperformed at the Tonys or the ones that – plays I guess we have seen. But the ones that underperformed at the Tonys or just longish running shows that are going to close before they get – you know, they have to get through September and October. Right. We haven't really seen that yet. We haven't seen this season the massive closings. And there are there are a couple uh, of, of shows that are either new – there's a half dozen or so that could go. Right. And there, at any and, time. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, and I, and I bet that, well, obviously the theater owners know better than we do, which those are. And I'm sure that there are kind of talks going on between some of the struggling shows and their theater owners about when they may make the decision. And that leads us to talk about if there's too many shows on Broadway that haven't closed, there's a larger than normal traffic jam of shows that have either been going for a while or holdover from this season, that means there are even more shows circling Broadway waiting to get in, whether they're transfers from London or transfers from off-Broadway or things that have had out-of-town tryouts or things that are going to have out-of-town tryouts. Um, I don't know if I want to put you on the spot about any rumors that you've heard specifically, but there has been a lot of reporting of things like Angels in America coming. We know Mean Girls that's having its out-of-town tryout in October in Washington, D.C. has had auditions that say it's coming to Broadway. So how did those shows figure into the chess match of maybe we're going to come, maybe we're not, maybe we'll wait till next season? And how do they impact some of the other shows that do definitely want to come in this particular season? 
Right. I think there's, I think that we're at the point in the season where you really want to take a, a close look at these shows that have been circling Broadway for, you know, however long that have, you know, something like Mean Girls that is a, a huge title with some huge creators behind it and that has a regional production scheduled for, for this year, uh, for soon, quite soon, actually. And I think, you know, in terms of their decision, part of it is how do they do? Right. Like if, if Mean Girls is well received, mm-hmm. it can, you know, flop, swoop right in. If it's sort of mediocre, then maybe they'll have to do another regional production. But there's it's always the case or most always the case that there is something from that pool of, you know, uh, high profile productions that we kind of know exist and that are rumored to be Broadway bound there's always at least one that swoops in and they tend to swoop. They, they used to tend to swoop in, um, in the spring, mostly because, you know, if a show has a, a regional run or an off Broadway run in the fall and it's very well received, they can go straight to Broadway on that momentum. But we've seen more and more now with Hamilton and the great comet and dear Evan Hansen, we've seen more and more of the shows taking fall dates and I think it'll be really interesting to see, especially because there's a there's a few sort of shows that have been on the waiting list, you know, um, things like Dreamgirls, which was in London this you know in this past season, or Angel in America, which obviously is finishing their their run quite soon and is now on you know, being streamed in movie theaters. There, like, yeah. there are shows that are waiting for I think the cards to fall. Yeah, another one, Hades Town. Um, which was off-Broadway at the New York Theater Workshop and is having a production in Toronto that is titled a Broadway-bound production. So there are definitely theaters, whether they have said they want to do it for this season or not, that want to come in if there is space. And that's something that we often talk about is just there are always more shows than there are theaters available, which is a good thing, like you were talking about in the grosses, that the business of Broadway is good. And when business is good, Unfortunately, the the negative side of that is that there are less opportunities for new shows to come in. Uh, exactly, and and it's it's sort of um, it's sort of why the feeling right now that I have is that there's going to be a lot going on in the next sort of thirty to sixty days because you look at the number of productions that are that have been saying Broadway bound and that are that are looking things, and then you look at the number of houses that are either free or likely to be free soon, and I feel like. It's been a quiet summer in terms of announcements so far, um, and I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to see what the, the end of summer brings in terms of announcements. Good, because I've, I've been saying on Broadway radio and, and online, I am jonesing for theater news. We have not had nearly enough. I feel like <laughs> I need some sort of, of injection of Broadway news where we just have a deluge because it's been so built up over the summer. We haven't had much at all. So, right. okay, Oliver, as we leave this here, is there anything, whether it's about grosses, about real estate, or about the things that you want to do with the O'Henry Report podcast, is there any kind of closing message you want to give to the listeners as we move forward with this project? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to continue doing, doing the O'Henry Report, and we're going to take a look at um, some really awesome things over the course of uh, the next few episodes. The way it's going to work is that we want to make sure that the, the episodes are relevant. So 
usually episodes will be scheduled. You know, I, I might know what the next episode is around the time that we're recording the current episode, but I want to make sure that it stays relevant and I want to make sure that we are, that our podcast is reflecting what it is that you're seeing in the news. And to that end, our next, I can tell you that our, our next episode will be looking at the process of recasting a show. So from the moment that we find out that an actor is leaving, uh, especially if it's a star, to the moment that the next performer takes the stage, we'll look at what goes in from, from casting to marketing, putting rehearsals, that whole process that happens behind the scenes before the person gets replaced. Um, and that's something that I think this year, this summer is kind of the only news that we've had when uh, you talk about things like what's Brendan Urie and Kinky Boots. And uh, just, just today, we at Sweeney Todd announced um, some casting changes and Natasha Pierre you know, obviously ha- went from Josh Groban to Oak in the lead. And so there's a, there's a whole lot of, of recasting that's been going on over the summer surrounding, I think, the Tony Awards and, and people kind of who are in original shows that wanted to perform through the Tony Awards. And so we'll be taking a deep dive into that next week. In the weeks to come, I think there'll, there'll be plenty more discussions about grosses, about certain contractual obligations or loopholes as, as they may come up. We'll really sort of play it by ear so that we make sure that whatever issues or, or opportunities or trends we see in the industry as they happen, we dissect here. And so that's sort of what I'll say about the future of the show. I'm, I'm really excited to dive into casting and whatever else the next few weeks brings us. You can find The O'Henry Report on Broadway World, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth, on Facebook at O'Henry Productions, and on the web at www.ohenryproductions.com. From myself and Matt and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks to talk to you about the issue of recasting a principal role in a show. See you then.